Hi, this is Megan. I am back again uh, with another episode of my podcast, Cocktails and Cookbooks. This is a podcast where I have a cocktail and I talk to you about the cookbook that I've pulled down off of my shelf. Um, this started a uh, few nights ago when I was making a drink and I was looking for recipes on Pinterest, of course. And it occurred to me, well, I have lots of books on my bookshelf. Why don't I go check out one of those? And one that was of particular interest was the Betty Crocker's New Picture Cookbook, which is by far the oldest cookbook that I have on my shelf. Um, I found it here in Baltimore at a place called The Book Thing. It's a wonderful little uh, book establishment where people bring their old books that they don't want anymore and come get new ones. And I was so lucky one day to pick up a copy of the Betty Crocker's Picture Cookbook because uh, it's 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 a, it's incredible. It's old, and this one is in amazing condition. And so, yes, the other evening I was going to make a drink, and I was looking through this for recipes of old cocktails. I thought for sure that this book would have it because the 1960s wasn't too much of a you know anti-alcohol time period. I don't think anyway, um, and. I discovered, much to my horror, that there are recipes for punch in this book. And I don't know if you know anything about punch, but it should have a lot of alcohol in it. There is absolutely none in these recipes. Um, there's a party punch, and uh, it is stripped of of any alcohol. There is even an, a, a recipe for eggnog in here that instead of having rum in it, contains rum flavoring. So I am sitting here with this book in front of me and a drink in my hand. The The drink that I made this evening, and I'm going to take a sip here. Mm. The drink that I have is called a Mayflower Sour. It's not something I've ever made before. Um, I have a bottle of Benedictine on uh on my sideboard and there uh i've been seeking really good beverages to make with it because it has such an intriguing flavor profile it's very sweet um and it's very herbal and so it seems like it would make a lot of good drinks but i think it's it's a um liqueur that has sort of fallen out of favor and if you're looking on pinterest there aren't a lot of drinks that you make with it so it contains Benedictine, yeah. mm. an egg white, and of course, one of my favorites. It includes gin and a lot of lemon juice, which is where the sour comes from. So this is the first beverage I've ever made that contains an egg white that has that sort of foaminess. And it's really cool, actually. I like it. It gets that foam. It gets a really nice texture. Oh, the other thing, yes. It also contains some apricot liqueur. So it's a little bit sweet, but not too much. And the, the lemon definitely cuts that. And um, yeah, it definitely, it has a lot of flavor. It brings out a lot of good things of the Benedictine. And it has that sort of herbal quality of the gin. 
I've been, I find one of the really interesting things about gin is that all the different brands are really quite different from each other. It is not like, I feel like you go from one kind of vodka to another and they're all pretty much, you know, the same flavor profile, but gin, because it's made with aromatics, the recipe can really vary a lot. So like Hendrix is very smooth and has that, you know, very, um, oh, what is it? A cucumbery sort of flavor. And then, uh, there's Bombay Sapphire, which I think is a very smooth one. Um, yeah, and I've tried a couple and, and I, it's one of the more exciting alcohols because it really traps a lot of very interesting flavors. I, I like the herbal quality of it. So here we are. I'm sitting in front of this cookbook and I've turned specifically to the beverage section, which is what set me off on this adventure in the first place. And it really is so, so interesting to me that here we have a recipe for eggnog and it includes an egg well beaten, two tablespoons of sugar, a cup of chilled milk, and a quarter of a teaspoon of vanilla. And, um, that's it. <laughs> and, um, eggnog is supposed to be alcoholic. I don't understand why. I really don't understand why this book has the alcohol stripped out of the drinks, but it does, which is just, I don't know. I guess the housewives weren't supposed to like drink. I don't know. It's so, so very strange. Um, there is also, this is fascinating. There are about 15 different methods for making coffee. I'm sorry. That's an exaggeration. I have a tendency to exaggerate. There are six different, uh, variations on coffee making. The, the coffee section of this book is enormous. So, there are instructions for making boiled coffee, which it looks like you just boil it in a pot of water and then you strain out the grounds and then you serve it that way. I've never done that and I intend never to do that unless I really must. Below that is a recipe for Swedish egg coffee in which you stir a tablespoon of beaten egg or egg white into a third a cup of coffee before adding water. Before adding water? What does that mean? I don't understand these instructions. That sounds insane, but it involves egg and coffee and water. Boiled coffee. Okay, so I guess, do you beat the egg into the coffee grounds? I'm so confused. This doesn't make sense. And this is under the boiled coffee, so presumably... I don't know. It doesn't make sense. It sounds a lot like that whole whipped coffee thing that's been going around, except I think that that is cream and then uh, instant coffee. It looks delicious. It seems questionable. I've never been a huge fan of the powdered coffee stuff, but I'm willing to try it because it looks delicious. It kind of sounds up my alley. There are, of course instructions here. Oh my goodness. I'm going to apologize right now because here's the thing. When I swallow drinks or basically anything, I gulp 
horribly. So if right now you are listening to me gulp every time I take a drink, I really sincerely, I am sorry. My mother tried to train me out of this from the time that I was very small. I have made every attempt to stop gulping when I swallow drinks, my own saliva, basically anything. Um, nothing has worked. Perhaps I need an occupational therapist to help me with this. I cannot swallow without making an obnoxious noise. It's abnormal. It's something I have to live with. It's something the people around me have to live with. And unfortunately, right now, if you're listening to me ramble on about this cookbook, I'm afraid so do you. Um, and really, truly, I am sorry for that. Okay, so we were talking about drip coffee. Some, let's see. So these are really basic instructions for, oh, wow. Okay, no, it's not basic. Some drip coffee pots have no filter, only a perforated top. Some have cloth and others paper filters. Scald the pot before making the coffee. Use two level tablespoons of coffee to a standard measure, measuring cup of water. Put the coffee in top part of the pot and pour the briskly boiling water two to three tablespoons at a time over it. Heat and serve. So this is like, this is, it sounds like one of those um, pour over. So they're calling drip, drip coffee. This is one of those like pour over sort of coffee things. I have one of those. It's, it's my favorite way of making coffee. And the reason why is because I'm much less likely to get heartburn, weirdly enough, when I make the sort of pour over kind of coffee. I used to have a French press. I loved my French press. Um, you get insane amounts of flavor when you brew coffee with a French press. Unfortunately, because you're extracting so much flavor and so many chemicals from the coffee, I cannot drink French press coffee. It gives me terrible heartburn, even if I add milk to it. So I had to give it up. Um, so I mostly do the pour over method, which is fine. It's good. It's not my favorite, but you know, it works and I get my coffee intake every day, which is extremely important. Uh, dripolator. I don't know what a dripolator is. Um, it seems like this is your pretty... Okay, so you measure the coffee into the filter section, vigorously boiling water into upper section. Cover and set over very low heat until water has dripped through coffee. Remove upper section, stir and serve. Okay, so this is one of those. I've seen these. Uh, and it's this weird metal contraption, I think, that has two pieces and you put it on the stove. I've never made coffee that way. So I can't help you there. Um, there. There's so many daggone ways of making coffee. And there's actually a really, really good reason for this. Um, the reason there are so many different ways of making coffee is because um, the chemicals in coffee are incredibly volatile. So what that means is that they break down really quickly. Um, so all these different flavor extraction me methods are going to have a significant difference in the flavor profile of the coffee. It's why some of us absolutely adore espresso. Oh my gosh, that pressure and the heat and the, yes, you just get so much out of your coffee beans. And this is also why you really, really, truly, for the best cup of coffee, you want to grind the beans like right before you brew your coffee because that's the only way you're going to get the full flavor. I'll forgive you if you don't do it. I'm not like a total coffee snob. I did live on the West Coast for a very long time. And 
So there is that little element in me of, I take my coffee pretty seriously, but I also try not to be crazy about it. All right, next, there's a percolator where you measure fresh cold water into the pot and coffee into the basket. Let water boil until it has perked five to ten minutes for desired strength. Now, I always thought that a percolator coffee maker, it's just that kind where it drips down through, right? I'm, I'm, I think so, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. Okay. So this is a story about how really legitimately serious I am about coffee. One of the best essays that I ever wrote in college, the essay that got me into the WVU Writer in Residence program was about my aunts and drinking coffee. No joke. I wrote an essay about drinking coffee and I was the only undergraduate at my school who got into the Writer in Residence program. You don't know what that is, but it was a big deal to me at the time, particularly considering that I was in there with a whole bunch of grad students And all of the grad students had been required to submit essays. So I even beat out a few, I think, to get into the program. Um, And I got to meet a real published author and write more essays, none of which were as good uh, as my essay about coffee. But I write award-winning essays about coffee. I take this stuff very seriously. The fifth type of coffee-making method according to the 1961 Betty Crocker New Picture Cookbook, is the vacuum type. So this is where, oh, you fit the top bowl on, you put the coffee in the top, you place on heat. When the water rises, lower heat, stir once, remove from heat after one minute. When coffee is back in lower section, remove top, put on separate cover, and serve. Whoa, I don't know. I don't know what this is doing. I would have to see whatever the the fuck contraption is involved in the vacuum type coffee because that makes no sense to me. All right, I'm just going to warn you that the last method is instant coffee. And for some reason, the instant coffee description is just as long as most of the others and longer than, say, the percolator. Place one half to one teaspoon of instant coffee in serving cup according to desired strength. Fill with briskly boiling water. Stir well. For iced coffee, use one and a half teaspoons of coffee and three quarters of a cup of water. Okay, and then the rest is about uh, decaffeinated coffee. All right, so instant coffee is pretty simple. You dump it in, you pour the hot water on, you stir it. It's very easy. It's also disgusting. Don't drink instant coffee unless you're camping or unless you like it. I mean, if you like it, then go for it. I'm just saying it it doesn't taste like coffee, or at least I don't think it does. Even the fancy. Does Starbucks even make those instant coffee packets anymore? I don't think they do. My parents used to take them when they went camping all the time. Um, And I don't think Starbucks even makes that anymore. So... That, that really is the bulk of the section on drinks. And I just, I'm still, I'm still
still trying to wrap my head around the fact that there are there are not any like alcoholic beverages in here other than the slight suggestion in the coffee around the world section one or two of them suggest that maybe you can chuck like some alcohol in there and it sort of feels like a you know we're going to give it to you because we have to so for example the irish coffee is obviously sweetened hot coffee in warmed wine glass with irish whiskey added whipped cream on top now if you ask my mother this is not remotely correct but it does at least suggest you add irish whiskey so my mom she lived near San Francisco for a long time. And I'm sure that everybody knows the name of this place that I'm thinking of. But she used to go out uh, to a specific bar in San Francisco. And she would get an Irish coffee there. And she once made this Irish coffee for me. Number one, it requires a special kind of glass. We're not talking about a wine glass. And you have to buy those special little sugar cubes. So you plop a sugar cube down in the bottom of the glass. And I believe you then dissolve the sugar cube into the Irish whiskey. Either that or you dissolve the sugar cube with the hot coffee. And then add the whiskey. Anyway, the sugar cube is semi-dissolved. Coffee, whiskey, whipped cream on top. But it requires a sugar cube and it's never in a wine glass. It's in a special glass and that is an Irish coffee and that is one of my mother's favorite beverages um and it's very very good I agree that it's definitely very nice these other coffees around the world I feel like the Hawaiian coffee um this is not how coffee is made in Hawaii and it never was um so it says to soak or cook coconut milk or no, soak or cook coconut in hot milk overnight. Ew. That can't be right. Because the milk is going to cool and like you don't want to sit out milk overnight. Okay, you strain and mix milk equally with strong coffee topped with toasted coconut. That just sounds insane. I don't understand. Is this an attempt to make coconut milk? Um, And also... No. Just no. I'm not sure. Like, I understand. Like, coconut and coffee. Eh, okay, alright, fine. But soaking coconut overnight in hot milk does not seem wise. I, I, don't, I don't know what that one is about. That's different. <sighs> then the... Then the, uh, the cappuccino is a strong, dark Italian coffee combined with an equal quantity of hot milk. <laughs> oh, dear. Okay. Poured into mugs and spiced with nutmeg or cinnamon. I understand now why our Starbucks beverages are the way they are. They were following the instructions in this book. This is the reason why a cappuccino... Look. Everybody. A proper Italian cappuccino is a shot of espresso and then 
deeply frothed milk. Like you want real frothy. Or at least for a dry cappuccino, which is my preference. I like a drier cappuccino. I like a lot of froth. I like a lot of foam. It should be about eight ounces. It's like a really small drink. And I'm I'm pretty solidly sure that you don't want to dump nutmeg and cinnamon on there. The point of a cappuccino is that your milk is really frothy. It's not just that the milk is hot, okay? The milk is frothy. And you want that froth in that milk. Oh, boy. I'm so sorry. I'm getting extremely pedantic here. I just got very aggressive. I'm going to bring it down a notch, but not too much because this is serious. So you get the milk frothy to get air bubbles into it. And the air bubbles help bring out the flavors of the espresso. So that's sort of the point of adding milk and espresso. Espresso is really strongly flavored. It's like everything is compressed. You almost need... It's like adding a drop of water to a really nice scotch and opening it up and letting the flavors kind of bloom a little bit. It's the same theory, only when you add milk to espresso, you're sort of the fatty compounds in the milk smooth out all of those flavors in the espresso and they linger on the tongue instead of just vanishing instantly the way they're inclined to do. So it sort of locks things in. That's what fat does. It's it locks flavor in. And then you froth that to help sort of break open. When you introduce air, you're like breaking open all of those compounds at the same time. So a cappuccino, you really get a lot of the espresso flavor. And yes, the milk to, <laughs> to espresso, you know, quantity, there's a specific balance that you're looking for there. Um, and you need the frothiness too. Like there has to be some froth. So yeah, the idea that a cappuccino is just strong Italian coffee combined with an equal quantity of hot milk is semi-ludicrous. <laughs> you're, you're basically, you know, you're making coffee and milk, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that, but you shouldn't call it a cappuccino because that's not what it is. Um, oh my goodness, I shouldn't have turned to this section because I can get ridiculous about coffee. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and there's a, I mean, apparently Betty, the Betty Crocker cookbook can get ridiculous about coffee too, because there are more pages on coffee here than any other drink by far. Um, so I'm not the only one. It's just that I'm right. And Betty Crocker in this particular case is wrong. And um, I'm not sorry for saying so. <laughs> yes. I paused to drink. Did you hear the gulp? Was there a gulp? Let me know how bad it is. And I'll see if I can get better sound equipment and tone it down. So. There are a lot of instructions here for how to make large quantities of coffee. What I'm going to read right now are these seven essentials for a cup of good coffee. <sighs> Look, Betty Crocker and I, I think, are going to have to have words at some point. She has told me that I need to be happy about cooking all the time, <laughs> that it needs to be an act of love, that I ought to put on my makeup every morning to boost my family's morale as well as my own. 
Um, it's, it's out of hand. All right. So the seven essentials for a good cup of coffee. And I promise after this, we'll get to things other than coffee. Number one, use fresh coffee. I agree with her there. Loses flavor when exposed to air. hundred percent. Betty, you're right on this one. You, you hit the target. Use the correct grind for your coffee maker. Oh my God. Yes. She's right again. Look, you don't want to put a drip ground coffee into an espresso machine. It just won't work. You need a fine grind for the espresso. You need coarser grind for the drip. It's just how it is. It, it has a lot to do with the brewing method. If you use a really fine coffee in like a drip coffee maker, you're going to end up with water everywhere because it can't go through. Whereas with the espresso machine, if you use coarse ground coffee, you're not going to get the correct, you know, flavor extraction. You need the fine grind because that's what espresso is for, is to extract as much flavor as possible. Use a clean coffee maker. Wash with soap and water after each use. Oh dear. I don't know how I feel about that. All right, so you'll have to tell me what you've learned. But according to my very serious about coffee mother, you should never clean your coffee maker with soap. Um, and I believe the reasoning behind this is that because of the way coffee brews and because of the volatile chemicals in coffee, you're going to end up with a really soapy flavor in your coffee, even if you rinse really super well. I could be wrong about this. I, I could be, but I almost never wash out my coffee pots with soap if I can help it. All right. Number four, start with fresh, cold water from the tap. Okay. I mean, that's all right. Filtered is generally speaking better, but I won't argue with coffee with water from the tap. I'm pretty sure that if you have hard water, you might want to avoid this. It will influence the flavor of your coffee. But it's not like when you make a cup of tea, which is so much more delicate. Yeah, with tea, you definitely want to use the purest water that you can, especially like a white tea or a green tea, because otherwise you're just going to lose a lot of the flavors. They're going to be overwhelmed by your crummy hard tap water number five make at least three quarters capacity of pot each time making smaller than this quantity deprives one of the full rich real coffee flavor i don't know about that that sounds extremely suspect the idea that you can't make a small pot i've never heard of that before this is the first time and I don't know, I don't know how to respond to it because I've never heard that. Number six, always measure coffee and water to keep desired strength the same. For weak coffee, use one tablespoon to three quarters of a cup of water. For medium coffee, use two tablespoons to three quarters of a cup of water. For strong coffee, use three to four tablespoons to three quarters of a cup of water. That is very strong coffee. But I suppose if you're using just like Folgers, I mean, this is back before there was a Starbucks, y'all. So that's perhaps reasonable if you're talking about like a really weak Folgers, then yes, I would say pile on the three to four tablespoons. That would be fine. All right. Serve coffee as soon as possible. If necessary to let it stand, remove grounds. This is wise. Um, keep hot 
on an asbestos pad over very low heat or in pan of hot water. Cooled coffee loses flavor if reheated. This is accurate. If you pop your cup of coffee in the microwave, it's not going to taste very good. Not, not like it did when brewed fresh. What the hell is an asbestos pad, though? Over very low heat. What is that? Um, obviously it's not healthy, whatever it is. Wow. But I mean, obviously, the reason asbestos is in so many buildings and has had to be taken out is because it is an amazing insulator. It works super well. It's just it also like breaks up and gets in your lungs when you take it out and then you end up with cancer. So that's super bad. But, um, what is an asbestos pad? If you have an asbestos pad or you ever had one, please let me know because I have never heard of this and it sounds like it would not be good for you, especially not if you break it or if your child eats it. That would be like all the kids, you know, Ugh, I won't even talk about that. That's inappropriate. Lead paint jokes are not okay. We're not there yet. It's too soon. After dinner coffee, especially here in Baltimore, I feel like there's still a lot of like lead paint issues here in Baltimore and it's very sad. It happens a lot in like, you know, lower income areas. It's something that definitely contributes, you know, to poverty and other issues. And it's just, it's very sad. It's, it's really not something to joke about. It's something to figure out and solve. So I think that we should move on from coffee at this juncture because I've yapped about coffee for almost 30 minutes, which coffee, coffee absolutely deserves way more time than that. But you aren't here for, for the coffee. You're here to listen to me ramble on about, about all of the nonsense in this cookbook, um, which includes Let's see. Oh, oh, this is fun. There are, there is a meal planning section, which includes menus for once in a lifetime parties. Oh boy. I can already tell that this is going to be something. And I can only imagine if you are living your life based off of all the, of the information in a book like this, then this is something that could cause one like a significant amount of emotional trauma. Just imagine that you have been tasked with planning a wedding reception in the time that this book was published when it was expected that you put your freaking makeup on every day and... And there is a menu like this. Party punch. We were just talking about drinks. It's over there. It doesn't have alcohol in it. So no one's going to be too drunk to notice that you messed everything else on the menu up. Spike the party punch, y'all. If you are living your life based off of the Betty Crocker cookbook, spike your punch. Just, you know, topple in some rum and pray to God that nobody notices that everything in the food that you just cooked came out of a can. I'm so sorry. Chicken salad, olives, radishes, pickles, tiny hot buttered rolls or finger sandwiches, 
What is a tiny hot buttered roll? How is that different from a regular sized hot buttered roll? What kind of pan are you making a tiny hot buttered roll in? How long do you cook a tiny hot buttered roll? Why wouldn't you just make a bunch of regular sized hot buttered rolls and then cut them into pieces? I really want to see a tiny hot buttered roll. I, I've really never seen a dinner roll that wasn't just the size of a dinner roll. I, I had two grandmothers. As basically everybody does. Um, one who made spam and cheese sandwiches and who chain smoked all day and drank six packs of Budweiser beer and said things like all around the pig's ass is pork. And I had another grandmother who hosted Linton teas and made cucumber sandwiches um, and who also never cooked a thing from scratch. And neither of these grandmother styles ever made a tiny hot buttered roll. And in spite of the fact that there's a huge trend of cute, adorable, tiny foods on Pinterest, I just made a miniature cake for my daughter for her birthday. It was a cookies and cream cake. It was delicious. I cut out little rings of cake with a cup that I had. Um, and it was adorable and she loved it. I've still, even in this age of tiny things on Pinterest, have never seen a tiny hot buttered roll. And I don't think anybody wants finger sandwiches anymore. They just fall apart. They don't make sense. And we've all figured that out. We've also figured out that sandwiches are wonderful. They're amazing. But a sandwich must be hefty, meaty, and have a ton of stuff in it. If you're eating light... A sandwich is not what you want, but I think that's probably because we're so concerned about carbohydrates now. I don't think in the time of this book that carbohydrates were so much of an enemy to all of us. Um, so I think that that's probably why tiny sandwiches were considered a-okay. So ice cream molds are also con <laughs> contained in this wedding reception menu. A wedding cake, a groom's cake, salted nuts, bonbons, and coffee. <sighs> okay, all right. But like, why is you one person doing a wedding reception? That seems like a group effort. Do you know what I mean? And also, the recipes... I don't know about the pickles. Suddenly I'm like really hung up on the idea of just having pickles at a wedding reception. And this is definitely something that used to happen at the church dinners that I went to a lot. Or say, for example, that Lindt tea that my grandmother was planning every year. There were always these little cucumber sandwiches. Like, and there was some weird pink sandwich. If anyone knows what the sandwich with all that pink stuff inside of it was, please let me know. There was always an egg salad sandwich. Ew. There was always a chicken salad sandwich. Also not a fan. And then there was like a dish of pickles. Not even, I don't know what your feelings are about pickles, 
I personally, I don't like a sweet pickle. I'm not a fan. I very much prefer a sour, tangy, sort of like kosher dill pickle. That's my preference. They're always these little tiny sweet pickles. So baby cucumbers. Someone grew of a cucumber vine and it only gave them like seven or eight pickles, seven or eight cucumbers, and they were these teeny tiny dinky things. And someone picked them when they were teeny tiny dinky, pickled them in something that made them sweet. And then they put them on the table at a luncheon and no one ever ate these things because they don't make any sense. At what point in the midst of all of this, in the midst of this wedding reception, are you going to go, do you know what I need right now? I need a pickle. Maybe after the chicken salad, but shouldn't the chicken salad already have pickles in it? I don't know. Let's turn to page 381 and find out if they use pickles in their chicken salad. They should, because a chicken salad isn't really complete without pickles, is it? I don't think so. We're going to find out. So their chicken salad includes two cups of cubed cold cooked chicken, which if my grandmother was cooking, according to this cookbook, which I'm 100% positive that my grandma Morgan cooked out of this, this exact cookbook, it was overcooked chicken by like a lot. A cup of diced celery. All right, we're on track. A tablespoon of lemon juice. I don't know how I feel about that. I've never added lemon juice to my chicken salad. Oh no. This means that they're not going to add pickle because they already added their sour thing. Salt and pepper, mayonnaise, and two or three hard-cooked eggs. <sighs> so yes, the suggestion then is that you garnish it with olives or sweet pickles. Oh, this makes me sad. So they don't put pickles in their chicken salad, you get to have it on the side. Because why? Because this, the, the tangy flavor of a pickle is just too much for people in the 1960s? I don't know. I guess it is. A lot of this cookbook is about avoiding very strong flavor. Um, yeah, this is incredible. So, the next section, because this is a whole section on planning meals, it's a special page, it's a blue page, and it's printed on extra thick paper. It's like all the rest of these pages are that very light, glossy paper that you really don't see anymore. And it's yellow now. I don't know what color it was originally, but it's this very light paper. It's very thin, but it's incredibly smooth, like... You can't see any of the texture of the pulp at all. Um, I'm sure it's incredibly strong. I'm sure it used way more trees than any of the paper that we have now. So when planning meals, you select foods for color. An attractive plate is quite important, for it is often said that we eat with our eyes. <sighs> Which, yes, absolutely makes sense. We all like... I mean, this is even more true now than it was then. If your recipe does not look pretty on Pinterest, no one is going to cook it. So we definitely 100% still go for the whole colorful food thing. This suggests that serve a colorful vegetable, such as beets or carrots or broccoli, 
along with a mound of snowy white mashed potatoes with yellow butter melting on top and a sprinkle of paprika. I have never once contemplated pouring paprika on top of my mashed potatoes to make them look prettier. I sort of feel like paprika and mashed potatoes... I don't want to say they're at odds with each other. There are definitely moments when I think it would be all right to go that direction, but... I don't think it should be <laughs> I don't think it should be general practice to put paprika on your mashed potatoes to make them prettier. Oh, and they talk about garnishes here, which I find very very interesting. I distinctly remember going to restaurants when I was a kid. And there was always on the side of anything that you ordered there was a sprig of some kind of, like, I don't know what it was. I think it was kale or some kind of super crunchy parsley, like parsley that you don't see in the grocery store anymore, that was specifically there to add a little bit of color to the plate. It had no other purpose. If you ate that thing, you were going to regret it because it was crunchy. It was inedible. It was just there to be like bright and colorful and perky when everything else on the plate was brown. It's like, oh, hey, I'm green. You're going to like me. Um, And as a kid, I would always eat that garnish and I would always be like, ew, yuck, this is disgusting. And that was like part of your training at the time was, no, you don't eat the garnish. It's just there to look nice. Um. This is something that I don't think that we do anymore. I think when we throw stuff on a plate, it had better be there for someone to eat. So we still have garnishes, but I think they're typically a little bit more edible than they used to be. Um, form. Serve a variety of sizes, shapes, and proportions. Meals lose interest if all foods are cut in same size pieces. If beef stew is served, add sliced tomatoes not apple carrot salad, and a piece of cake, not a fruit cup. What? All right, this is just banana pants. This, you could drive yourself insane, like trying to cook this way. Variety, it is important to serve a variety of foods within a meal. All right, that is important. This is true. This is good for your health. We know this now. You shouldn't eat the same foods all the time. However, it's a lot of planning right here that they're talking about texture. Meals can be monotonous when foods are all smooth or all crisp. When a steamed food is served, put it on crisp toast points or in crisp pastry shells. Garnish with colorful carrot sticks or celery curls and serve apple crisp for dessert. Crisp salads and crusty hard rolls go well with soups. I mean, that is true. Crusty hard rolls do go well with soups. Um, that is because dipping a roll in soup is basically one of the highest pleasures in life. They're not wrong. I agree with Betty 100% in, in this department. Be sure to serve hot foods hot and cold foods cold. As a rule, lukewarm warm foods should have lukewarm appeal. Try to plan meals so that foods are at the right temperature when eaten. I have known people 
who really legitimately planned the cooking of their meals so that things finished at precise times so that they were like ready to go. I generally speaking don't do this unless it's a special occasion. But of course, I'm living a very different life than a lot of the people who probably lived by this book. Flavor. Oh, this is, interestingly, one of the shorter paragraphs here, and perhaps the most important, I think, when you're eating food. Color came first, y'all, and flavor comes last. I don't understand this. For appetite appeal, plan flavor contrasts such as fish and lemon or turkey and cranberries within a meal. Avoid serving more than one strong flavored foods. Serve mild flavored foods early in the meal, then the stronger ones with something sweet for dessert. Use spices and herbs to enhance the natural flavors in food. Do not overspice so that food flavor is overwhelmed. Use condiments such as Ketchup, mustard, Worcestershire. I can't say Worcestershire to save my life. I just can't. I've never been able to. There are too many letters in there, and none of them make sense in how you pronounce it. So you're just going to have to go with me on this. Worcestershire sauce and pickle relish, but use them sparingly. A little will complement, but too much will overpower. And um, I ate a lot of food cooked by people who sort of leaned very strongly towards the milder flavors, towards the sort of like high fat, low spice, you know, sort of methodology. And um, it resulted in a lot of very bland foods. And there, there is a reason why these days I have a very full spice rack and I, I spice general, generously. I think that this idea of like overwhelming sort of like chicken breast with like a bunch of, let's say you're using Moroccan spices and lemon juice. Yes, uh, you might overwhelm the flavor of chicken, but perhaps there's nothing wrong with that. Chicken is pretty plain, and it can hold up to a lot of spice. Uh, there is then an entire section on table surface. Uh, another thing that I must confess is that my table manners, by and large, are pretty heinous. I've gotten better at it over the years, but I'm pretty sure that my... I talk about my mom a lot. It's because she still gets quite irritated with me over, say, my inability to use a napkin at appropriate moments, um, at the fact that I like to sit with my feet, like, cross-legged. I'm not very good at sitting in a chair what one would consider the normal way. I find it very challenging. I don't like to put my feet on the ground. My theory is that this is because my legs are short and my torso is long. I've never yet found a comfortable chair where I could just, you know, plant my feet on the ground without my legs going numb. So I like to sit cross-legged or with 
one leg pulled up. I am in fact sitting that way right now. One of my legs is like pulled up. I'm leaning over it. I'm hugging my knee. That's how I sit. And so for me, sitting in a chair at a table is distinctly strange and uncomfortable. So this idea of the fact that there are these different types of table surface, there are you serve food from the left and pick it up from the right. There is an English family service or a formal service, which is Russian. You serve the hostess first so she may lead the way. Others serve the guest of honor first, continuing in order around the table. Um, this idea that there is a certain time to, you know, place dishes down on the table is is definitely not my preference. I'm a I'm a very casual diner and I feel like the point of food is to enjoy it. So if you are sitting around a table where there is so much structure that you don't know what to do or all you're thinking about is what to do, then you're not really enjoying yourself in the way that I think you should when you're eating food. All right. There then follow a lot of photos of very fancily set tables. And they're very lovely. And I'm sure that they're fine. But... My table does not look like this. And I won't apologize for that. My table is covered in crayon marks. Okay. I don't like my table. Uh, it was $100. I bought it after I fled my ex-husband's house and got my own apartment and suddenly needed to furnish the whole thing all at once. I ordered this table for $100 off of Amazon. It's very cute, but it's very small, and it's round. And fitting more than one or two people at a very small round table is very uncomfortable. On top of that, the upper surface of the table, for some reason, collects marks in a way that is just absolutely incredible. So... I have accidentally stained the top of this table permanently. It was white. Now it just is sort of gray with a bunch of smudges of crayon and pencil and marker on top. And we're talking about washable crayons and washable markers. So I'm not a huge fan of my table. That said, even if I liked my table, it would not look like the table settings in the Betty Crocker cookbook. And I'm all right with that. Because, like I said, it's just there's a level of formality that um, that I prefer to skip. It's just me. I'm freeform. I, I like to play fast and loose. Um, and if you have 15 spoons and forks, it's just, it's not much fun anymore. And food should be fun. It should be something that you enjoy. It should be a warm welcoming, delightful part of your life. You could have the most delicious meal that has ever been cooked sitting in front of you 
And if you are in any way uncomfortable eating it because you don't know which spoon to pick up next or you're afraid the person sitting across the table is somehow judging you for the way you're eating it, then you're not enjoying it. Food should be made with love. It should be served with love. And you should be allowed to eat it with love, both for yourself and the person that you're eating with. So that is how I feel, dear Betty. That is how I feel about your charts and diagrams of table settings. There is a section here. It's all menus for when you're having company. And it includes a section of cheery breakfasts. One of these menus is cantaloupe and strawberries, buffet eggs, overnight cinnamon coffee cake, and coffee. You know what? That sounds good. I don't know what a buffet egg is. I don't know how that differs from an ordinary egg. Are they talking about scrambled eggs? I don't know. There's an asterisk next to it. And, oh, okay. You see the general index for starred recipes. So they have a recipe for buffet eggs. That's good because I don't know what that is. The dinners from foreign lands. I'm a little bit frightened to read this because I imagine that the, um, the open-mindedness and the accuracy of a cookbook from this particular era cannot possibly be flattering in retrospect. So, the Indian dinner from foreign lands includes chicken curry. I'd be very interested to turn that recipe and see what's in it. Fluffy white rice. Okay. Bacon bits, chutney, coconut, salted peanuts, and orange... Sherbet. Do you say sherbet or sorbet? I feel like sorbet is S-O-R-B-E-T. And when it's S-H-E-R-B-E-T, that's sherbet. Or would it be sherbet? I've heard it pronounced so many different ways. So that could have been worse, quite frankly. I expected worse. And on the next page... There are illustrations that are worse, but we weren't, we weren't as good as we should have been in the 1960s. I think that this was a time when America was definitely sort of like one of the most, definitely the most powerful country in the world. Quite possibly one of the more enlightened ones. I don't know. We ought to have known better. We ought to have been doing a better job at this point. We were a little bit too obsessed with how our women felt while they were doing chores and not obsessed enough with the actual cultures of different people in different parts of the world. So, yes, and I think this book really demonstrates that. And that's an interesting thought, this idea that sort of we were turned very inward, which is, you know, a, a huge uh, issue with sort of nationalism and imperialism. And there was all this sort of like 
is a pressure cooker sort of situation. There's all this intense pressure on the people within the country to be a certain way, to look a certain way, to act a certain way, to cook certain kinds of food. And all that introspection, at least on the image that we're, we sort of have as people, and not nearly enough sort of looking out at what other people think and what other people do and contemplating that and reflecting on how that sort of looks in comparison with our own lives. Um, I think that was, was sort of, that's a very detrimental moment. And I think it's very expressive of sort of the culture that this book comes from. And I think that our country, the United States of America, um, has definitely sort of wobbled back and forth between those ideas of looking inward and looking outward. And I don't think we've ever done a good job of learning from other cultures. Um, I don't think that we've ever really done a good job of <sighs> sort of appreciating the breathing space that we have as a unit, as a nation, and taking the excess energy that we have and using it to look out at other places and learn from them and also, you know, learn how to be of assistance uh, to them rather than a detriment, I think that we have, and perhaps this is human nature, I don't think that we've, th I don't think that's a good excuse because we're thinking creatures and I think that at this juncture, at least in some ways, we probably ought to know better. But I think we've had a tendency to turn in and, you know, build enormous yachts and, you know, sort of gild ourselves in wealth and all the trappings of all the good things instead of, yeah, looking out and learning. Um, and I think that that's interestingly, you know, you see that here in, in a book like this. It's a cookbook, but, and I'll make this argument over and over again. You can learn and experience so much about a culture by learning about and experiencing their food. Because this is one of those few things that we all do. It genuinely unites us as human beings. This need to eat food every day and and sit around it and and this is what so many cultures do is it's not just about consumption it's about gathering and it's about sharing and and i it's so expressive of not only the resources that we have around us but also what we value what we take seriously um how much time is being spent on certain parts of a recipe how much energy is being spent on extracting flavors are you making, you know, a, a Thai curry paste, which is 
you know, in, in, in a lot of Thai culture, you're talking about sitting with a mortar and pestle and pounding the shit out of a bunch of incredibly aromatic ingredients for a very long time until it's a paste. That's an incredibly time-consuming and effortful, you know, sort of process. And it's an incredible way of extracting flavor. You won't see anything like that, you know, in, in, I don't know. And, and then you go to a place like Seattle on the west coast of the United States where it's all about these deep, dark, you know, roasting of coffee beans and this incredible extraction of this flavor that in so many places would be considered burned. But believe me, if you have ever lived in the Pacific Northwest for more than one winter, there is something about those over-roasted coffee beans that you need after five months of nothing but clouds and rain. And so you see these kinds of things that they maybe don't make sense out of context, but within the context where they come from, they absolutely do. Like there's a reason why food is being prepared the way that it is. And so to experience the the food within this cookbook to to look at sort of what this 1960s American culture valued is it's a window you know to another time and it's a window to another place and I just I find it endlessly fascinating as you can tell so I, I'm going to wrap up here for the evening. Um, I hope that you've enjoyed my rantings and my ramblings about this really incredible cookbook. If you'd like, I can continue on with this specific book, but I think that probably, at least for the next episode, I will turn to something else and get some new thoughts um, there's just, there's a lot to discuss here. If you've never seen the Betty Crocker new picture cookbook, I highly recommend that you, if you can track down a copy, check it out because it's fascinating. It really is. It's, it's probably one of the most interesting books on my bookshelf at the moment, just because it says so much about the moment in which it was published. Um, Cheers. Once again, the beverage of the evening was a Mayflower Sour. It is quite delicious. It's very drinkable. And the book was Betty Crocker's new picture cookbook. And I'm just, I'm really thankful. Uh, that's an interesting word, but I'm really, I'm really thankful for you coming and listening I'm thankful for this window into this other world. I'm thankful for food. I made moussaka yesterday. It's in my refrigerator. A couple of days ago, I made a Peruvian chicken soup. Um, I really truly believe that food is sort of one of the great uniting forces um, in our world, not just in that 
It allows us to sit down with family and friends and share, you know, flavors and textures and all of these wonderful things and love, you know, but also it's an opportunity to share other cultures. So I challenge you, go out, find a recipe from a culture that you've never experienced, make that food and think about maybe the reasons why. The food is made that way. Why are these things important? Thank you so much again. I hope you have a wonderful day and a wonderful evening. And uh, we'll talk again sometime soon. Cheers. Good night.